Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talks from the 2019 East End Conference held in the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the East End of London on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. The fourth speaker at this year's conference, in conjunction with the October meeting of the Whitechapel Society, is Dr Drew Gray. Drew is a senior lecturer in the history of crime at the University of Northampton and has published three books and several articles on crime and violence in the 18th and 19th century London, including London Shadows and most recently Jack and the Thames Torso Murders. His talk is entitled... Adventures in Ripperology, a cautionary tale from the Academe. Um, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Whitechapel Society meeting, October 2019. And as always, I'd like to start by welcoming all of those who are listening to us. And there are thousands of you that download this. So you're very welcome. If you want to find out more about the Whitechapel Society, then you can go to our website, which is whitechapelsociety.com. And just to give you an idea of where we are, four minutes or five minutes walk to the due south of us is Tower Bridge. And another five minutes to the due north of us is Whitechapel High Street, uh, seeing Butthole Church without Allgate High Street and so on. So we're right in the middle of the East End. I'd also like to extend a huge welcome to those of you who are joining us tonight from the East End Crime Conference, which has been fantastically organized by Adam Wood and Mark Ripper and his team. Um, we've had a terrific day today in the East End Conference, and we're looking forward to another day tomorrow as well. And we hope you do it again next year, Adam. There's one final welcome I'd like to actually pass on. Um, and I know that a lot of you have come a long distance to visit us tonight, but I bet you uh, not many of you have come all the way from Colorado, USA, stateside. So I want to say a huge welcome to Tiffany Durkin. Tiffany! <laughs> A long-time member, first time uh, meeting, attending our meetings. You're really welcome. Great to see you. Tonight, we welcome Drew Gray and Andrew Wise. Drew is, as well as being head of humanities at the University of Northampton, is author of many books and papers on historical crime, including one called London Shadows, A Social History, focusing on the Whitechapel murders. That sounds like a book we should all have in our library somewhere. He's also written an undergraduate textbook on the history of crime from 1688 to 1910. That kind of covers it, doesn't it? The book must be the length of this room, I think. He's currently working on a global study of 19th century murder, and he's writing another book on London law courts. So all in all, a very busy man indeed. I'm really glad he's found time out to come and join us tonight. So tonight, he's going to be talking about his new book, written in collaboration with Andrew Wise, and we're delighted that Andrew's joined us as well called The Thames Torso Murders, New Ripper. He'll be talking about the book, what the reaction to it was. He's also going to be talking about his review of a book called The Five by Hallie Rubenheld. Now, for those of you that have been following this online, there's been a lot of chat, a lot of conversation about this, so I'm really looking forward to hearing Drew's um, opinion on that. So... Finally, he hopes his talk will be thought-provoking, a little challenging in places, and entertaining. I have no doubt that it will be. Ladies and gentlemen, Drew Gray. Thank you.
Okay, um, the first challenge is me standing on a block so you can actually see me because I'm still very small. Um, and the second one is going to be working in technology. So first of all, can, can you hear me at the back? Yes. Yeah. Even the poor lady that's out in the, in the desk in the cold, can you still hear me? Yeah. yeah. Excellent, great. Okay, so um, this is the second time that I've addressed the Whitechapel Society. Um, so some of you may or may not remember this, but this is back in 2011. I last spoke to the Arch Chapel. I think it was in August, and I spoke about uh, a really nasty murder in 1888 that had absolutely nothing to do with Jack the Ripper. It was um, a gang murder, a youth gang murder, which is very pertinent, of course. And I finished that talk, um, very well received, really lovely crowd, up, up in Allgate. And, and then I got in my car, switched on the radio, and apparently Tottenham was on fire. The Tottenham riots had broken out. I don't think it was directly related to my talk. <laughs> And I'm really hopeful that a similar thing won't happen tonight. But given the way that their, their local football team is playing at the moment, I really wouldn't put it past them. So. so thank you very much for having me back again. Obviously, either you don't remember me or um, I didn't do too badly that time round. So and also thank you for what was a fantastic conference today. Um, today's conference is really interesting. And I wanted to pick up, before I get into my flow, some of the things from that. I think one of the things that Louise Raw said was to me, what spoke to me about in, that, in her talk was about history making connections and about the fact that working class lives matter. But working class history is often quite unrepresented, I think, in, in the academy, in, in academic history, the sort of history that I tend to, to do. And I think part of this is because a lot of history is written by middle class white men, he says, standing here in front of you as a middle class white man albeit a short middle-class white man. And she also said, which I thought was really quite powerful, that history is a weapon, seemingly used by, of course, the winners in history. That's that classic quote, isn't it, that history is always written by the winners. And so to study history is, is really important. And I think that trying to, to study history today in a world which is exceedingly difficult for us to unpack and where there's an awful lot of fake news, false histories and fake narratives flying around is even more important. So the kind of stuff that I do, the kind of stuff that Louise does, the kind of stuff that you do, individually and collectively, is even more important today in challenging some of those beliefs and notions of the past that um, we are constantly being fed and revisited, whether it's by the, the far right or the far left or by anybody else for that matter. And I think those are things to hold together. I also thought it was interesting in the two other talks today about the fact in John's talks and then when we were listening about the, the, the Ratcliffe Highway murders, in thinking about the way that history is also mythologised and in the way that certain things in history that we've kind of taken for granted or we've always been told can be challenged with new research. You know, whether that's new research that unpacks... I'm almost worried about how I say Carnarvon or co co wherever it is in Wales. I can't... I'm going to say Blenarvon because I, I know that part of the world. But the idea that perhaps we've always been told that there were no Irish people living there or not enough of an Irish community for Mary Kelly to have come from there. But actually, John's research shows you that there was. And I think that that's the kind of work that you're doing. So all of that stuff put together, mythologising and thinking about you know, truth and, and how we, what we mean by that, it's all really important. So that was my kind of vague beginning bit, but I think that's important in, in thinking forward. So, my biggest challenge, actually, is the fact that these glasses don't work terribly well and, I, and this light's really poor. And I'm, I'm, I'm also 
a, a nearly a decade older than when I last spoke to the Whitechapel Society. I'm greyer and my eyes are worse. But anyway, bear with me. So let's start with a bit of background because um, a bit of background and context because I think you would all agree that context is everything when it, when it comes to history. So let's start with me declaring that I'm an academic historian. That's not that controversial. However, I thought it might be useful to explain what I mean by that, especially when I hear and read comments that say things like, and this is on both sides, we don't need academic, and if it isn't academic history, it isn't proper history. Two sides of that opinion base, if you like. For me, and I think there are other opinions that are available, an academic historian is someone working in academia who is earning their living from academia. So I'm employed by the University of Northampton. Um, I'm employed to teach and I'm employed to research. This means I'm expected to produce peer-reviewed um, research that every seven years, don't ask me why it's every seven years, it just happens to be, every seven years is assessed by an independent panel which looks at the overall quality of a subject area like history and at the university's research profile. That's my job and, I t and teach students. This research, and this means our research, takes the form of a variety of outputs, which are generally books and articles. And our wider public engagement, which is something that I'd like to come back to perhaps at the end if I get time, or perhaps in question. Each academic in a department like ours, and there are nine at Northampton, nine academics, is expected to enter at least one and up to five items, books or articles, into this research excellence framework every seven years. Which is easy enough in theory, you might think, write some stuff and get it published and blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's quite difficult. It takes, for example, on average, it takes probably three years to, to research and write eight to 10,000 word articles for an, for an academic level. And it might take you a, couple, a year or more to get that published. And that's even if the journals take it. There are a limited number of journals and they won't always take your work. They'd usually send it back. It usually goes to one or two anonymous people who tell you it's rubbish and ask you to change things, which is very annoying. You have to kind of bite your tongue and carry on. Books, of course, take longer to write, um, are weirdly slightly easier to publish, but they're still going through a very intensive peer review process. So if you bear in mind the fact that, you know, we generally have a lot of duties, you know, we're teaching in a five-day week and we are doing lots of admin and going to lots of boring meetings and I've mentioned this to Sue, she might be able to get me out of a few, which is great. Um, we only really have one day a week to research, so that's why we use our summers, and that usually means June, July, August, to do our research. Now, I'm not asking for your sympathy here. Don't, don't worry, I'm not going, oh, poor bleeding, poor academics, blah, 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 blah. We get fairly well paid, even if we don't have the job security that becoming a professor or a tenured professor in the States, for example, used to mean. It's usually a job for life. I've just had to fight for my job this, this summer because they wanted to make me redundant or the head of English redundant. They made him redundant and they made me head of English as well. Hurrah. So I've got twice as many cats to herd as I um, had before in terms of running two departments. So academic history is based on peer-reviewed research and publication. And this is carried out with the assumption that while we might earn money from writing some books, but not for articles, you get no money for writing articles. It's not our main income, that's our salary. So, in reality, I've earned very little from any of the books I've written before this one. Uh, I don't know how much I've earned from this one, but hopefully we're going to be rich, 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 and we're going to go and retire and live in Spain together in a big, lovely house. I don't know. That's probably not going to happen. 
London Shadows, which um, you mentioned, which is, which is nice, that, that did make a bit of money, although it was an academic, kind of an academic book. But that's unusual. Usually they don't make any money at all. What academic history, however, is not, is something that is better in any way than so-called popular history, and certainly not better than many of the things that I've read from people within what I would call your community. So I'm here to say that academics do not have a monopoly on historical writing and research, and I don't think any of my colleagues would claim that they do. Many of you that write and research are undergoing peer review in exactly the same way. You're sharing your work with your peers. You're talking about it, you're learning from it, you're learning from each other and you're sharing stuff. And that's something that I want to say in this, throughout this talk that is really important and for us to be listening to you and you to be listening to us, even if there is a you and us, if, if you see what I mean. So in my day job, I run the history and English departments in Northampton, and I'm also a manager. So I have all these different things, and yet I still manage to do a bit of daily research. I do my daily blog, which I call The Police Magistrate. Some of you might have encountered, because it's based in the, in the 19th century, in the, the 19th century police courts. I've just finished a, a new book for Outledge on 18th century murder crimes, I might say a little bit about that later, or you can ask me about it. And I'm in the middle of writing this highly illustrated study for Thames and Hudson, a coffee table book on murder. I mean, why anyone would want a coffee table book on murder? Perhaps I'm looking at an audience that would want a coffee table book on murder. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely fab. It's full of maps. It's really exciting. And it's great fun to do. And I got that because of my engagement with this community. That's why my name came up to them. That's why they're interested. So that's from... That's part of this kind of stuff. You're not getting any of the money, but um, it's fine. I've not been always been an academic either. I'm, I mean, I, I came into academia relatively late. I finished my first degree when I was 37. I'd worked in retail before that. I didn't, do, didn't finish my PhD until I was 43. Um, I'm obviously 44 now. Um, <laughs> um, and I've been working at Northampton since 2005, and that's 14 years as a lecturer. And yes, it's, yeah, that's why the hair's going grey. And, and I used to be six foot one, if Andy will remember me then. And that's where I met Andy. And uh, it was love at first sight. No, Andy took my third year module, which is on the Ripper. And that's where the germ of this idea for our book came about. The module I teach at third year there focuses on, uses the Whitechapel murders as a prism through which to explore historical ideas about Victorian popular culture, about policing and crime, about prostitution, poverty, housing, immigration and race, politics and unionism, and anything else that takes mine or my students' fancy that fits within that broader thing. Everything that you're interested in is in that module. And I've been delivering that module now in a variety of forms for a decade, and it was this and, and his gentle powers of persuasion that helped me decide to enter the crazy world of ripperology. Which brings me to ask a question. What makes someone a ripperologist? I asked this question because of something that Paul Begg said to me in an email this year. We were discussing a recent book on the victims of the ripper. I mean, you may not have heard of this book because the author is very shy of publicity. <laughs> and I, in response to Paul, denied being a ripperologist. Paul told me, quite reasonably... But I was. And Paul Begg speaks. We listen. He said, you've studied the Ripper for a decade. You've taught students 
for just as long about the Ripper. And you've just written two books on Whitechapel and the Ripper. You are a Ripperologist, whether you like it or not. So the question is, do I like it or not? And what do you think? Am I a Ripperologist? Or am I an interloper, an outsider, like so many of the Ripper suspects? Um, what is a Ripperologist? And is there a secret sign that allows them to be identified? Like the Freemasons, for example. Yeah. I'm looking around the room and seeing whether I can discern anything that shows me. Now, this might seem a bit glib, but it's not intended to be. I don't necessarily see myself as a Ripperologist because it's only a part of what I do as a historian. I teach about crime and punishment, and some of my research, most of my research, in fact, is about things other than 1888. I'm interested in petty crime, in the role of the magistrate, and in the power of the state to oppress working-class lives. They're the things that really get me interested. I find the Ripper case, though, very useful because it's attractive to non-historians, it's a very attractive to students, to the public, and it allows a way into talking about a range of things that interest me. So if I go to a dinner party, which doesn't really happen very often, but, you know, imagine for a moment. I go to a dinner party and people say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a lecturer. What do you lecture? Oh, history. Oh, I like history. School. What sort of things do you do in history? Oh, I do crime punishment. Oh, I'm interested. You know, I've written a book on... Oh, you've written a book on the Ripper. Right, now I want to talk to you. Now everybody wants to talk to me. My friends who teach environmental science, they're kind of over in the corner there. Nobody's interested in talking about butterflies. I've always argued, though, that this is a case that can't be solved. So why write a book that suggests that it can be? The answer to that is both complicated and simple. Simply, Andy, who's bigger than me, badgered me and presented me with a fascinating subject and a scenario, and I was intrigued. So, in the character of James Hardiman, I thought there was a candidate who fitted my idea of the killer. Someone local, someone under the radar, and someone plausible. So I'll come back to James and our book shortly, but let me outline the more complex reasons for writing this book. Most academics I talked to couldn't see what there was to gain from writing it. Clive Emsley, a friend of mine, asked me what my fascination was. What was the point, he said. Well, for me, there's been an intellectual exercise in applying my approach to research and writing to a field in which there are excellent research-led examples. Many books on the Whitechapel murders are either badly written, poorly researched, based on extremely implausible scenarios, or simply quite mad, in my experience. And some of you I now know own 30, 50, up to 100 of them, because there was a survey done at the, at the thing. Nobody quite hit the 200, I noticed. The really good books by Paul Begg, by Neil Bell, I think in the room, Donald Rumbelow, Philip Sugden, to name but a few, don't try and name a suspect. While many of those that do, very few, if any, reach the quality of the names I've just recited. So the challenge I set was whether we could write a good, well-researched and referenced, and that's important, history of the case and its context, while still naming a suspect and offering an intellectual overview of the field. Could we do that? Now, you and others will be the judges of that, uh, but I think we've given it a reasonably good go. Does that make me a ripperologist? Is Andy a ripperologist? I don't know. I have no problem with the tag anymore, and I don't see myself as an outsider. But again, we might return to that later. 
So now I'd like to say a little bit about the book and what we put in it. So, the book is called Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, A New Ripper. It's probably fair to say that this is a very difficult book to write, and not least because it's the first properly collaborative book I've authored. Andy and I divided the task of the book, but I probably ended up doing most of the writing and the editing. So those sort of kind of typographical mistakes, they're down to me. Everything else that's wrong is down to Andy. Okay? Ha-ha. Um, we, rec <laughs> we recognised that this book needed to do a variety of things in, to take it beyond a simple solution book. And as I've suggested, was in part inspired by the better books that I'd read. So I wanted to set up our candidate, James Hardiman, um, give a contextual history of late Victorian London and provide some sort of intellectual commentary on the wider genre of ripper writing. The second part was probably the easiest. I can't see the value in ripper histories that don't understand the context in which the murders and the police investigation happened or that don't try to share this with the reader. We shouldn't assume that someone buying or reading our books would be automatically be as familiar with the history of London or the East End as you lot who are experts. Many of you won't learn that much that's new about the case, but then you are a peculiarly informed readership. Plenty of comments I've received from outside this community suggest the book contains new information on London's history. Much of this I researched for this book, but a lot of it I already knew from teaching for the last decade. So I wanted to include stuff on poverty and ha on, on housing. I wanted to look at the geography of the East End. I wanted to look at transport links, the horsemeat trade, prostitution, syphilis, all of which are integral to our version of the truth, in inverted commas. I'm aware that there is now a lively debate about prostitution and the Ripper victims, but let's pick that up later on. Andy concentrated most on the candidacy of Hardiman, the person we think most neatly fits with the killer's profile. He and I discuss Hardiman at great length, with me playing the role of sceptic most of the time. So Andy's here to answer your questions later, if you have them, on the case. So, a brief outline of our thesis. In introducing this book to other audiences, I've outlined the timeline of the Whitechapel and Torso murders, but I'm not going to do that because you guys know all of this stuff. So... In brief, in the book, we argue that one man was responsible for both the Thames Torso murders and the Whitechapel murders. And we argue that man was James Hardiman. It's not the first time Hardiman's name has been associated with the Whitechapel murders. He was first posited as a suspect by Rob Hills in 2004. And he picked up on that um, and, um, and uh, Hills and, and Adrian Stockton's work and suggested to me that there was worthy of further investigation. That's kind of where we started. Instead of two killers, we decided there was only one. And that meant we had a serial killer on our hands who was responsible for at least 13 murders between May 1887 and February 1891, plus three or more non-fatal attempted murders. On one level, this raises the stakes for the Whitechapel series, which has more usually been agreed to have just five victims. So, to the names of Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Kate Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly, we've added Martha Tabram, Rose Milet, Alice McKenzie, Francis Coles and four unknown torso victims, one of whom may be identifiable as Elizabeth Jackson. We also add the attempted murders of Annie Millwood, Ada Wilson and Annie Farmer. While this might seem a leap in the dark, it actually seems quite reasonable when set aside 
both contemporaries of Jack and modern serial murderers. So, for example, Burke and Hare in Scotland killed 16 or more people in Edinburgh in the 1800s. William Palmer's tally, the poisoner, was 10. Mary Ann Cotton's 21. Um, I've just been researching Joseph Vacher, the French ripper. He killed somewhere between 11 and 20 people in rural France in the late 1800s. In the modern era, American serial killer Ted Bundy killed 35, John Wayne Gacy 33, Gary Ridgway 71, while in England, Fred and Roseworth killed 12, Peter Sutcliffe 13. So, to credit Hardiman with 13 or more is not implausible. We argue that Hardiman, as someone who knew the East End and other parts of the capital extremely well, used his position as a cat's meat man and someone involved in the wider slaughtering trade to kill and mutilate his victims. He had learned knife skills, was inured to the grisly business of dissection, and had ample opportunities to slake his thirst for blood. He knew all the ways to evade capture, critical as the police stepped up the hunt for a killer, and benefited from both the expansion of the Harrison Barber horse slaughtering empire and the increasing transport network that linked the capital in the Victorian period. We present Hardiman as someone who could have killed these women, but also give reasons for why he might have wanted to. It's our contention that Hardiman contracted syphilis at some point in his life. He seems to be someone who wanted to get ahead in life, to earn as much money as he could, working weekends wherever possible, and who liked to spend his money. Maybe he also liked the fairer sex. And while he was married, he was not averse to liaising with the local prostitutes who would have been happy to take his money. If he did contract syphilis, is it, not, it is not too much of a stretch to suggest he passes on to his wife and then through her to his only child, a daughter that died within a year of her birth. His wife went into hospital where she would die in September 1888. James suffered two severe blows in a very short space of time. Is it unreasonable to suggest he wanted to find someone to blame for his misfortune? Thereafter, this man, who'd grown up in the East End, had lived in Hennage Street and on Hanbury Street, and who knew his way around Bethnal Green, as well as sites in central London and south of the river, was a free agent, able to go wherever he pleased, whenever he liked. Moreover, as a local cat's meat man, he had the perfect cover for anyone asking too many questions as to why his clothes were stained with blood. For me, Hardiman is a very plausible candidate to be the Ripper. He has motive, the loss of his daughter and wife to illness, possibly related to syphilis, possibly contracted from a local sex worker. He had the opportunity with his work, his freedom of operation once his wife went into hospital, and the means. His skills gained as someone working in the meat tra trade, his ability to hide in plain sight, his access to numerous hidden spaces. Motive, opportunity, means, all key to identifying a suspect. And then let's look at the geography. Here was a man familiar with Whitechapel and Spitalfields. With the key murder or discovery sites such as Hanbury Street or Pynchon Street, he was familiar with both of those living, as we believe he did, in Hennie Street, just off Brick Lane. Yes, our case relies on speculation. More than I would get away with as an academic historian, perhaps. But no more, and quite a lot less, I would argue, than many other solution studies. Tying Hardiman to the Torso murders might be a stretch for some people. It was a stretch for me at first, I'll admit. 
But then the whole issue of how many victims Jack killed has always been controversial. Do we agree he killed five or six with Tabram? Or can we go with eight or nine or more? Why not double figures like many modern serial killers? To me, it made sense. It made more sense that Hardiman killed in a variety of places and with different MOs than it did to believe that London had two serial killers at large at the same time. I know there are differing opinions on that. On the question of MOs, modus operandi, let's pause for a moment. One Amazon review of our book dismissed it because we suggested Hardiman killed in different places in different ways and said serial killers never ever change their MO. But that simply isn't true. The French serial killer Joseph Fascher raped some of his victims, cut the throats of some, strangled others. He killed outdoors. He killed in an elderly woman's home. He killed women, girls and young boys. Henry Holmes, maybe a possible ripper suspect, had a variety of ways to dispatch his victims, if any of the stories about him are true, of course. Um, e even if his motives were similar in most cases. There are variations in the later killings perpetrated by the so-called Zodiac Killer, California. And even a modern ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, varied his MO, if not his signature in his killings. So I think we can, and that's just a few examples, we could find more. I think we can be allowed a little license here. Hardiman used the skills he learned to cut up his victims. If he could do this behind closed doors and at his leisure so that he could torture his victims, he would. If he couldn't, he did what he needed to on the streets, which meant that he mutilated them as a substitute for torture. We believe his signature was the garroting of his victims and then the cutting of their throats. What followed afterwards was what was possible. However, one thing I hope was made clear in the book. We present Hardiman as a plausible candidate for consideration. At no point have either of us claimed that we've solved the case or have got everything right. There are mistakes. It's perhaps just a bit of a shame that it's generally the mistakes that people want to top jump on, sometimes a bit dismissively, rather than the more general conclusions we made. And of course, along with the suspect thesis, this book offer also offers the reader a well-researched introduction to late Victorian urban history. So we have sections on the East End, as I said, on poverty, housing, prostitution and its control, on the problem of sexually transmitted diseases, on the meat trade, on transport networks, the press and the ripper letters. This then is not simply a solution book, it tries to do a lot more. So, I don't know how many of you have written a book, um, but I'd like to share a conversation I had with a good friend of mine, someone who's authored several. My friend, not on history, he writes on psychology and uh, music. My friend, I'll call him John, it's not his real name. He's a writer by profession. He's also a musician who's played on sessions with top bands in the 1960s and he's someone who dances three times a week in, in dance clubs. He's 72 and he's still dancing, which is really good to know. And he's, he's a hit with the ladies, which is great. He says, he says, people often say to him, John, I can't dance, I've got two left feet. Probably we've all said that at some point. I've definitely said that to him. Or... I wish my parents had made me keep up my piano lessons. I might have been quite good at it by now. But they also say to him, I reckon I could write a book. We've all got a book in us. And this makes John cross. He reckons that with about six lessons, anyone can learn to dance. In fact, this is a very similar thing to Len Goodman said to me when I worked with Len Goodman on a TV show many years ago. Um, he was wrong, um, but um, yeah, whatever. He hasn't seen me dance. With more commitment and time, many of us could learn the piano, at least to a reasonable standard, John says. 
But writing a book is very hard work. It takes time. Um, it takes months or years of research and an ability to command a narrative over 80 or 100,000 words if you're talking about something like this or, you know, for example, the books that Paul Begg or others of you have written. I've written now five books and writing another, I'm writing another one and I've got one in the pipeline and it, it, it isn't easy as I'm sure many of you know. Moreover, it's even hard to get, harder to get one published. This book took ages to get signed up by a publisher. We, we approached loads of publishers, sending them the ideas and copies of the book before Amberley eventually turned around and said yes. Um, and many of the emails we sent just never bothered to come back. You know, it's like job interviews, job, job applications. It's just the same, basically. Very disheartening. So let me be under, no, let be under no illusion. Writing a book is hard, getting published is hard, and anyone that tells you otherwise is fibbing. This is not intended to put anyone off. I reckon that we should all be going to write books. We should be putting our heart and soul into these things. We should be believing in our research and we should be trying to do it. But some of the negative comments I've received about this particular book have come from people who've never written a book, who've never written an article. And I, I, I don't take them as seriously as some of the others. I just wanted to put this picture on. We couldn't use this picture in the book because we couldn't afford to pay for the permission for it, but this is kind of my idea of what James Hardiman might have looked like, you know. This is the cat's meat man. I think he looks actually fan I'm a bit disturbed by him holding the little girl's thing, little, little girl's hand there. But this is your ordinary person in an ordinary place, hiding in plans, plain sight. This is our killer with the means, the motive, and the opportunity. That's, this, this image is held by the London um, Museum. They wanted quite a lot of money for it. So, let's have a talk about the reactions. Whenever you publish a, a book, um, you're going to get reactions. You're going to invite comments and criticism. And it's all part and parcel of the writing and research process, and generally, I welcome it. All academic work, as I said, is subject to blind peer review, and helpful and constructive criticism usually improves what we do. This is why I sent a mostly complete version of this book to a noted scholar in the field, someone who is a friend of this society, and he, I'm not naming him because I don't want to embarrass him, but um, he gave us useful feedback and he pointed out some of the more obvious mistakes. Um, since publication, the book's been dissected on both the Jack the Ripper forum and on Casebook, and it's probably fair to say it's received a mixed reception. We made lots of little mistakes, maybe some big ones, um, and those are probably born out of a number of factors. The first is simple. We wrote this book together and kept exchanging notes and draft versions of the text. Andy did most of the casework. I concentrated on style and the context. The negative comments tend to focus on factual mistakes, which appear to be a mix of both perceived and actual and are a reflection of the problems associated with A, repeating mistakes from secondary sources. Be warned, that happens. B, repeating mistakes from primary sources. Be warned, that happens. Um, especially contemporary newspapers, which make lots of mistakes. But sometimes, you know, particularly with the torsos, you haven't got much more than the contemporary newspapers to go on. And see our own mistakes. Others tend to take issue with our interpretation of the material and the perceived excessive speculation. It has to be said, though, that the contributors to the forums don't always agree with each other. And I'm grateful to those who've asked for some patience with the overall thesis instead of leaping to dismiss it on the grounds that small details are wrong. So I don't tend to look at reviews. I'm afraid I, I made Andy go into all the forums. I, I don't tend to, I, I don't 
generally have time and while I'm quite thick-skinned, I didn't really want to spend lots of sleepless nights. I don't like any reviews of my work or even, I don't even like reading module reviews by students. I have to and they usually like them but I always dwell on the one negative review and ignore the 20 or 30 students that like it anyway. So, um, I am interested though in people what, like, in, in what people like Paul Begg um, say more than someone that hides behind a nom de plume on Facebook. Um, one reviewer on Amazon dismissed the book because I made the mistake of calling the press the third estate when there are, of course, the fourth estate. I knew that. In fact, it's in my first book and it's in all my lecture notes. It was a typo and a mistake. Shoot me, you know? Whatever. But that apparently negated the whole book. My mum, um, who's still with us, thank you, um, spots grammar and typos, but these days a copy editor does very little in terms of actual editing. And this is about 100,000 words, so you do get a bit jaded constantly checking it. Any of you that write, you know that you're reading over your own work. It's really hard to see after a while. I'm not proposing to address all the mistakes we made. You can ask me and Andy questions if you like. One discussion was amusing, though. <coughs> Deborah Arif observed that we have too many arms being discovered for the Whitechapel torso. Yes. This might have arisen, she says, due to a mistaken contemporary newspaper report saying that a leg and an arm had been unearthed by the dogs in the basement rather than two legs. Andy's pretty sure it had two legs originally. Well, I presumably it did have two legs originally. Um, <coughs> as he remembers doing a limb tally. What on earth is a limb tally? Um, anyway, that's why he does that sort of stuff. Um, but it seems to have subsequently undergone conversion to an arm and a leg, making with the one found in the river, which is a definite match, and the Lambeth Blind School find, which we posit as relevant, three. So we've got too many legs or too many arms, whatever. Who knows? But of course, we are reliant on the sources we have available. And as you all know, these are problematic. Woo! Um, indeed, all of the research onto the Ripper case and its related history is based on what sources have survived and on the interpretations of those sources that we make. And I've already said we've speculated here more than I normally would in an academic work, but it's not an academic book. It's not going into my ref process. And it's far less speculative than some I've read. Much of what we've argued relies on Hardiman's relationship with the cat's meat and horse slaughtering trade. One commentator questioned the operations we credit Harrison Barber with and then claims that the whole theory is null and void because it cannot be proven that Hardiman was a peripatetic slaughterman and therefore travelling around locations linked to the murders. This is based on an annotated census record in 1881 which sees the word knacker written above the word dealer in the occupational entry. I know you like this detail. Dealer in horse flesh seemingly was written in a different hand. This individual asserts that knacker is merely used to differentiate between pet food and horse meat fit for human consumption. Now we'd be surprised if such an official distinction was routinely made given the taboo surrounding horse flesh consumption in Britain in the 19th century. Furthermore, if that were the enumerator's intention, then would it not have been more appropriate to add this over the words horseflesh instead? This is a matter of interpretation. Even if we accept Hardiman 
had not officially described himself as a knacker as well as a cat's meat man, there is equally no proof that he never undertook casual work for such a nature for the slaughter yards. As another commentator has pointed out, whether he was an official slaughterman or not, he was around the horse meat trade constantly and probably at the yards on a daily basis. So he would have been thoroughly cognizant of what went on there and may even have assisted with some of the operations on occasions, albeit only on a casual basis. Moreover, his assertion that the whole theory collapses due to this fails to take into account that Hardeman could have been afforded similar opportunities by delivering carts to such yards as Arthur Duckfield's, for example. The comments from the Ripperology community were always going to be based on their, on your, detailed knowledge of the case, but also founded on the principle that this is a case that can't really be solved. Everyone, well, most people perhaps, have their preferred candidate for the Ripper, be it Kuzminski or Lechmore or Tumblety or Druitt. We tread on toes when we enter the lists and we expected that. But we make it quite clear that we are putting Hardeman forward as a possible suspect, not the suspect. We don't say case closed and we don't claim to have solved the mystery once and for all. We never did. Some of the criticism extends beyond the book to my blog on the London police courts. Andy comments, I didn't read this, but it's nice of him to share it with me. As he sees some of the, the comments being both gratuitous and spiteful. I, I am fairly thick-skinned. I am an Arsenal fan, after all. And comfortable with the fact that my blog gets between about 2,000 and 3,000 reads a month. It's often recommended by other scholars and school teachers as a useful resource. But I write it for enjoyment. It started as an exercise in making sure I undertook a piece of daily research. And if others read and enjoy it, then that's a bonus. If you don't like it, or you don't agree with what I write on it, then don't read it. Better still, start up your own blog and do your own thing. And let others read that. And that's largely how I feel about criticism of anything that I do, really. Criticism is easy. Informed criticism is very useful. And we take it on board. And on the off chance, Amberley give us a second or a third edition, like Louise Raw, hurrah, then we will make the changes in it that people have suggested to us. But the book is out there now, and like many others in the field, better or worse, non-experts are buying it, reading it, and forming their own opinions of it. So, I don't want to say much more on that, except to say that we find it quite possible to defend Hardiman in lots of ways, not for his actions, but as a candidate for being the Ripper. Although our contention that he was a slaughterman has been challenged as unproven, his background as a lifelong cat's meat man is well attested. As such, he would have been attending slaughterhouses on a daily basis to pick up horse meat. He would have been well acquainted with the people working there and its operations. It's not inconceivable that he availed himself of casual work in some capacity, perhaps even in the slaughtering process itself. At any event, he would certainly have been well-placed to acquire the types of knives used in the murders and was undoubtedly adept at using, using some of them in the preparation of his offerings. As far as his travels to other slaughterhouses is concerned, if it wasn't as an itinerant slaughterman, it could well have been in connection with his work for the cart and barrow manufacturer Arthur Dutfield. His relocation to different sites may also have been necessary in relation to his business. As far as the contention of some ripperologists then that the argument for Hardiman is fatally flawed, we would suggest this is far from the case. So we would highlight these following points. Henny Street, where Hardiman is definitely known to have been living at the start of the Whitechapel killings, is included in credible geoprofiling hot zones, 
only metres from Florendine or Thrall Street, which has previously been regarded as the epicentre of the killer's operations. This represents uh, the best geoprofile fix of any candidates thus far. Hardeman has a direct prior association with a murder site, Annie Chapman's, having lived in, in Hanbury Street. By virtue of his trade as a cat's meat man, it's inconceivable that he would not have been intimately equated with another murder site, that of Polly Nichols in Bucks Row. He has a motive, the death of his child and his wife in quick succession, with syphilis at least probably being perceived by him as a strong motive, as a factor in their deaths, which gives him the motive. Opportunity. He would have been home alone in Henry Street at the start of the killings, following the death of his child and the hospitalisation of his wife, making him unaccountable to anyone and giving him complete freedom of movement. Means. If he was only a cat's meat man as opposed to a slaughter man, Harden would have been familiar with the use of knives, etc., etc., etc. All found then, James would have seemed to present a much likelier suspect than Kosminski or several of the others none of whom possess anywhere near Hardiman's qualifications in terms of means, motive and opportunity. Furthermore, people like Kosminski and Lechmore, their geoprofiles compare poorly to Hardiman's, neither of them, for example, having ever previously lived at a site where a murder took place. So we're a little baffled, perhaps, by, by some of the rejection of this as a, as a concept. Now, it might be... I'm not so sure about this these days, but it might be because we're perceived by some people, and I don't think by people here, as outsiders. And that brings me to the next section of my talk. This, this is where I pull, I pull the author out from behind the screen. Um, at some point last year, I sat down with a fellow historian at a coffee house in Clerkenwell to discuss the Ripper and to discuss Ripperology. We chatted for a couple of hours. We got on famously, um, even though we'd only met briefly once before. That was the last time that I spoke in person to Hallie Rubenhold. And although we parted on really good terms, it's fair to say that I don't think we'll be repeating the coffee date anytime <laughs> soon. And I have to say that I find that sad. The reason that is that I reviewed her book, The Five, for the reasonably prestigious academic but popular academic journal, History Today. It's the one you can buy in, 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 in W.H. Smith. And she didn't like what I had to say about her book and about her approach to writing her book. Let me be clear. I enjoyed her book. Um, there, I've said it. And I said it was an important contribution to the field and would engage a new audience in this topic. I genuinely believe that then. I genuinely believe that now. It is extremely well written because Halley has a really engaging, fiction-like writing style. It makes you want to keep reading. It's one of those unputdownable books. You want to keep flipping out. Maybe not everyone here, but that's how most people that I know read it have reacted to it. Great. It's almost like a holiday book to read by the pool. She also chose to focus on the women's lives and not on their deaths. And I found that a really positive thing. But I took issue with her central argument that some of the victims were not prostitutes and that, by implication at least, studies that have characterised them as only prostitutes 
do so with the intention of dismissing them as somehow unworthy of our sympathy, or worse, deserving the death that they were given by the killer. Now, given that the Times and other contemporary newspapers in 1888 were quick to blame the murders on the victims themselves, or see them as a product of the degraded community of Whitechapel in which they occurred, it's quite reasonable for Rubenhold to posit this as a theory. But, like the very interesting idea, we had a long conversation about this, the very interesting idea that streetwalking is not a euphemism for prostitution, but a literal description of homelessness, going from place to place without anywhere to find your kip. The five completely fails, in my view, to back this up with evidence. What really made Rubenhold annoyed, however, was my suggestion that she'd misused what little evidence we have with, on the murders to mislead those readers who were not as familiar with the case as you and I are. As some of you may know, I spoke in email to Paul Begg before I wrote my review, and he gave me a very detailed critique of Rubenhold's work. I used Paul's comments, um, but I checked the references. I checked the evidence of the stuff that he said. I didn't just take Paul's stuff and stick it in. I went and checked it, as any good historian hopefully would do. Um, the editor um, gave Halley a right of reply, which was good of him. didn't tell me that it was giving Halley a right of reply. And she accused me in print of siding with the Ripperology community and, dam and damning her in public. I followed, and she did this on Twitter as well, and I followed her Twitter spat earlier in the year with Trevor Marriott, who did himself no favours at all. I wrote supportive messages to Halley, and I largely agree with her, but I also became increasingly concerned that she might be manipulating the attacks, such as they were, on her, for the very understandable reason of selling her book. Halley is not an academic historian. She does not teach or work for a university. Her histories are not peer-reviewed in the academic sense. She will not usually speak without a fee. I, I know this because I've asked her to come and speak to my students. She earns her living writing history for a public audience, and she's a very good self-publicist. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Nothing wrong with that. But I fear the Ripperology community, broadly defined, may have simply confirmed in her mind an opinion she already had of it, and wasn't about to alter. She sees Ripperology as one-dimensional. Obsessed with Jack's identity, as reveling in the gruesome details of the murders, at worst as misogynistic, at best as dismissive of all outsiders to the club. Now, I'm firmly in your club, I'm in the Ripperology club in her eyes, which is why I copped it on social media as I was coming back from holiday. That was interesting, because you're kind of difficult to respond, you know. My wife was saying, don't, just don't, leave it alone, you know. Fortunately, I have plenty of academic and non-academic friends, amazingly, who could see beyond the rhetoric and judge my review on its merits. It was fair, it was balanced, and in no way dismissive of what is a very well-crafted piece of popular history. But it hurt to be called out publicly as, I interpret it, part of the problem when it came to Ripper studies. A lot has happened in my life since I pressed send on the final version of Jack and the Thames Torso Murders. I've finally gotten round to completing a volume of case studies on 18th century murder for Routledge, which should be out in 2020, but I'm afraid it's going to be about 60 quid. On the back of my work in Jack, I got asked to author a glossy coffee table book 
for Thames and Hudson, which I've mentioned. And that'll look at murders across the world in different cities in the long 18th, 19th century. And that should come out in time for Christmas next year. You'll need a big stocking for it, though. It's going to be quite a big book. Might make, actually, someone said that my book will make a good doorstop. Actually, this would make, this would make a really good doorstop. This and my experience with you and the book has also made me reflect on future collaborations and possible projects that might drive forward my interest in public engagement with what I'd call, I don't really, I'm not sure about this and you can help, Ripper Studies, something along those lines. I don't know how many of you heard my last year's talk to the East End Conference. I largely expanded that for the final chapter of my book and Andy can't take any responsibility for the final chapter. It's all my own work, so if you hate it, blame me. Any mistakes in the book, you blame Andy. If you hate the final chapter, you blame me. All right? I did want to do something different in our book. I wanted something that would give it an intellectual gravitas, if I can be so pretentious for a moment. I wanted to challenge Ripperology to engage with academia and vice versa. I wanted to bring the fields of history, criminology, true crime and popular culture together to raise the level of debate around the Whitechapel murders. I still do. The world, the world is very ignorant about the context in which the murders took place and is still consumed by the mythology of the case and the image of the East End that numerous books, films, documentaries, etc. have presented us with. The world also now has an image of a ripperologist, which in my limited experience is quite a long way from reality. And that's a shame as well. Quite simply, Rubenhold's book has reached a new audience and it may be the only thing that they read about the Whitechapel murders and about ripperology. Perhaps that doesn't matter. Perhaps I'm worrying unnecessarily. But I ask the question, do, do we, do you, want to do anything to challenge that? I'm offering to host a conference in Northampton, if we can't do it in London. London's quite expensive, actually. Um, in 2021, I'd like it to be an international conference. I'd like to bring together academics, ripperologists, independent researchers, school teachers, and the public to discuss a number of themes arising from the murder case. The point would be to establish Ripper studies, or another expression, as a serious as well as a popular area of interest. Jack is taught in schools. He's taught in some universities. The case informs or has the potential to contribute to academic studies of social history, criminology, psychology, popular politics and race, true crime, the popular press, popular culture, art, gaming, film, drama and photography, and of course, gender, gender studies. It's a rich theme for study, and I want to help dismiss the sneering view of ripperology that's emerged over the, over the years, and particularly over the last few months, as a bunch of sexist blokes sitting around delighting in the murder of a dozen or more defenceless women, which is how some of Rubenhold's acolytes see it. Why do I want to do this, you might well ask. Simply because I've met lots of people in this community who don't fit the image that the media would like to ascribe to them. Just as I want to dismiss the idea that Jack was a top-hatted toff or a crazed immigrant or a psychopathic surgeon with a Gladstone bag, I want to help to establish ripperology as a serious intellectual and educational pursuit undertaken by all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. That's not to try to take it away from those of you at all, well, not to take it away from you that might see it as a pastime, as fun, as a vehicle through which to make and develop friendships, because I can see that really clearly, and going out on the walk last night was really clear as well. That also happens in academic communities. When I go to academic conferences, the best bits are the pub and the dinner and the conversations that happen over coffee, not listening to people like me banging on for an hour. 
So in a way, all I'm saying is give peace a chance. And let's work together more in the future. Now, I don't expect members of Ripperology Forums to like our book or to even to like us, especially not Andy. But I do ask for criticism to be fair, balanced and well-intentioned. I got right, quite rightly told off by Paul Begg for the comments I made to him when we were doing a, some materials for my course about Patricia Cornwell not being a very good writer of history. He thinks her very genuine as a person and sees her assert as very well-intentioned. I think she's wrong about Sickert and said so in London Shadows. But in print, I've never, been, I've never maligned her as an individual. I also corrected some of my teaching materials after speaking to Paul. And I added his books and Neil Bell's books to my reading list for students, along with other work by Ripperologists. I even made one of the East End Conference podcasts available to my third years and have encouraged them to look at writing in the Ripperology magazine. So I'm already introducing what happens in communities like this to undergraduate students. So I'm stealing your stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, the, Ripper case, the Ripper case is a created industry. When we pu published, we got nibbles from media and TV. Rubenhold, though, has secured the rights to turn the five into a miniseries. There is gold in the streets of Victorian Whitechapel, and very little of it will see its way back to the community that lives here. Indeed, what is this community anyway? Who are the modern people of the abyss? If we hold a conference, it should be one that brings the modern communities of the East End together with those of us that like to write about the past. We need to hear from modern immigrants, from the homeless and neglected, from the modern sex workers, from women who live with ripper tours passing to and fro their streets every night of the week. What impact does ripperology in all its various forms have on the folk that live and work in Spitalfields and Whitechapel today? Do we know and do we care? If I'm now a ripperologist, I would like to know what it means to the world in which the ancestors, directly or otherwise, of Martha, Polly, Annie, Liz, Kate and Mary Jane inhabit today. I think that's much more important than squabbling over my new shy. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay, well, that's great. Um, it's now quarter two. Should we have about a 20-minute break? And when we come back, we'll have some questions and answers, okay? Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. Hopefully you have enjoyed what has been a terrific talk from a, a great speaker. So we've got, we haven't got a lot of time. We have to be out of here by 10 o'clock. So I'm gonna, we're going to allow 15 minutes for questions. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. How did the name James Hardiman come to your attention? I think I can answer that one. Yeah, uh, as Drew said earlier, I took um, one of his courses. Uh, I came to uh, do a history degree at the ripe old age of 49. So obviously by that time we've brought things to the table. Uh, what I did, uh, I've worked in the investigative field before and um, on occasion I'd employed um, some geographical profiling to um, locate people. And, uh, of course, with the, uh, when Jack the Ripper came up, I didn't know very much about him at all. And I thought, uh, well, I'll just try, you know, s um, some profiling on this guy. And I looked at the canonical five plus Tabram. And, uh, I mean, traditionally um, it's come up in the sort of uh, um, Trawl, uh, Flower and Dean Street, Thrall Street. Um, I came up with um, a, a bit... Uh, a, 
only a few metres really away, but Hanese Street, the west end of Hanese Street, came up uh, in uh, the epicentre of my profile, and uh, it hadn't really been investigated before. So um, with the power of computers, I just Googled in uh, Hanese Street, Jack the Ripper, and up came uh, the articles from Hills. <coughs> and... Um, then, uh, looking at it further, it transpired that he'd actually been uh, resident at um, one of the murder sites, yeah, 29 Hanbury Street, and uh, by virtue of his occupation, uh, he was also probably very familiar with um, um, <coughs> Bucks Row, um, where Polly Nichols was killed, um, with the um, Barber's Yard being in adjacent Winthrop Street there, so... All this was sort of coming together, and uh, when you looked at means, motive, and opportunity, yeah, if you if all these things in conjunction, he looked like a very, to me anyway, credible suspect. And I was quite surprised that Hills had uh, seemingly got fed up with it, and uh, um, from what I could make out, he'd been effectively dismissed as a suspect um, from members of the community um, as far as I could gather at the time so I was quite mystified by this really although I didn't agree with the sort of direction that Hills had taken this uh, candidate in um, I thought he warranted much uh, closer scrutiny so um, that's how we basically got involved with it um, and we took it from there where the evidence as it is led us <laughs> Great, thank you for that. Do you have any, uh, any other questions? Yep, John at the front, hold on. It's a question for Drew, actually. Um, this might be slightly unfair because you're a historical academic rather than a scientific one. Uh, <laughs> but recently we've had the fuss, shall we say, over the so-called Shawl DNA identification, uh, which was a claim made and then a very long-delayed peer-reviewed paper which left out a lot of the scientific method and the way that the conclusions have been drawn to. Um, and I'm being very careful with my wording here, but some people could conclude from the comments of Dr. Turi King, for example, uh, that the peer review process had perhaps been influenced by the headline nature of the study. And I'm just wondering what you think as an academic about the idea that someone with an academic background and qualifications could perhaps be carried along, shall we say, by the idea of a, a high-profile case and a high-profile solution to perhaps fund their you know, novel research and whether, as an academic, you feel that's a, an acceptable compromise to make. Well, um, I, I mean, I have to start on the premise that, that I found the whole shawl thing really, really problematic. I'm not really one for quick solutions to things. I, I don't think that... I certainly don't think academia is pure. I don't think academia is, provides all the answers. I don't think that means that one dismisses it. I mean, I have friends who are scientists at Northampton, so, you know, you know I, was, I was disparaging about environmental science, but one of my best friends at the university is an environmental scientist... Now, and he would never have acted, I think, in the way that that acts. So peer review can break down. 
and people can get carried away with the, with the wrong premise and they can do things for the wrong reasons. And, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry, people are tasked with giving money to... Well, pharmaceutical companies will give people money to research something that proves what they want them to prove. And ethics should always be part of any good piece of research. And it's particularly true for, for science, but it's also true for our area, for history. We have to look at ethics Usually I don't have to worry about the, the Review Ethics Committee at the university because all the people I'm dealing with are very long dead. Um, but my colleagues that work in the 20th century, um, they have to look at the Ethics Committee when they're looking at anything because you might be dealing with people who are still alive or who are relatives of people who are still alive. But, you know, I taught somebody a few years ago who was a direct descendant of one of the Ripper victims. So perhaps ethics do matter. I think, I mean, in a roundabout way, I think I am quite disturbed by that process but I can understand how someone might get caught up in the fact that this is perhaps a way to get publicity for what they do and therefore money for what they do we underfund we underfund various areas of our society including science and the arts um, in this country and in other countries so I can kind of understand why an academic might do it but that doesn't make it okay but I, I, my first question would have been this is rubbish uh, this is this is ridiculous. You're trying to find something out from something 130 years ago and finding DNA. And hang on a minute, how is this found in Mitre Square? Why is a policeman doing that there? Why is that policeman here? There are too many questions with that piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. The providence is always a question there. Okay, and I've got another question from the front. Um, it's a question for Drew again. Sorry. Um, it's just um, when you met with Hallie, did she offer? Any ex explanations as to, you know, obviously, Liz Stripe was um, registered with the Swedish authorities as a prostitute, and um, on the night of her death, Mary Ann uh, Nichols, she said she'd made her DOS money three times over that night. So did she offer any... When I talked to Hallie, um, she was really... She started, and I tried, to, I tried to challenge it a little bit with her, and, and to be fair understood some of this uh, she was she started off by saying no one's ever done this before no one's ever looked at the, the victims no one's interested in the victims why aren't they interested in the victims drew that's what she was kind of saying to me now she had read um Shel sheldon's book on the the victims which she she said and she's spoken to him about this um so she had done some of that stuff and she seemed quite reasonable to me and we had a good conversation and we didn't go into the details of it because you could probably be aware for me, the finer details are not what's important. It's the broader picture that's interesting. I've always accepted that the women that, that were murdered by the Ripper were prostitutes. I haven't ever seen that as being a problem. But not all the time. Yeah, but I was always asked the question of what is a prostitute in, an, in, in 19th century, late 19th century London? What does that actually mean? And we had that conversation. But... She wasn't pushing her point then, which, because I think she was keeping her powder dry for what came out in the book, which is reasonable. Any, any author might do that. She wanted to give everything away. So she was telling me about the homelessness thing. She was still exploring the homelessness thing, the street walking. And I, I was saying, that's really interesting. I'd never thought of it like that. Perhaps, that is some, perhaps street walking does mean walking around the streets to find somewhere. Maybe that's what Catherine Edwards was doing. Kind of makes sense. And then I was waiting for her to produce the evidence that demonstrated that she was right, because that's what you were doing. You posit a thesis, and you produce some evidence to at least argue that strongly. But she never did. That was the issue. 
and we haven't spoken since. Although I'm sure after she hears this, so I'm sure she's listening, she'll be calling me up and we'll be sitting down and having that conversation. She's already blocked me on Twitter. But guess what? I've already blocked her on Twitter. So, okay. Okay, is there any other questions? Yep, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm just thinking of what you've been saying about um, attitudes, really, between writers, people with different views, whether, how, how fair it is. I mean, I take the view that people on the whole come from um, good intentions. And I think uh, Hallie, for instance, who I've heard speak, I don't know her, but I've heard her at the London Library, for which she wasn't paid. She has a sort of feminist view on, on this subject. Um, she managed to persuade uh, a really excellent publisher, Doubleday, to take it on, probably for the same kind of reasons. Um, and I think it seemed to be that evening, that seemed to be her, her point that what, what, what's professional prostitution, what is casual prostitution, what is... Um, and we know that there are women who, students who take up prostitution to pay for their fees and so forth. And I think she seemed to be just making the, um, the distinction between um, professional hardened people who've been on the streets for a long time and those who are less so. Um, and the other thing which um, struck me, and I think this goes for a, a lot of writers, talking about people being hard-skinned, thin-skinned, she seemed really genuinely shocked by the attacks. Now, anybody who's been around ripperology uh, is inured to it. You're going to go and you're going to write what you think you want to write, you hope you can listen to. She hadn't been subjected to the ripper world, which can be quite vicious. Mm. Um, and so I'm only saying that, I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong, but I'm talking about the way we treat each other, we, if we're writers. Um, very few people come to this with you know, bad intentions. I just wanted to say one word about the, uh, you mentioned about the shawl. Um, and when you've got um, a situ situation, you've got a, you've got a writer on the one hand uh, who is an absolute enthusiast, obsessional enthusiast, um, and, and they, they are around in this world. Paul Feldman was another one. They get completely eaten up by whatever... It is they, 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 and they believe it in, in, in totally and entirely. I would draw the distinction between um, the, the person who's writing the book and the scientists. Um, the, the person who, the person who, who did the science work, who I know a bit, um, he he wasn't uh, interested in Jack the Ripper at all. Um, he he was asked to do this work, uh, this DNA work. I think they'd met on, a, on another TV program. Um, and that's all he did. And, he, and I think John Moore's university supported that, just in terms of facilities. I don't think there was any money there. Um, but it was peer-reviewed by, the, by a, you know, a well-known journal, Journal of Forensic Science. Now, I don't think one can just say they know nothing. As it happened, I do know there was quite a considerable debate between the reviewers... Mm. And, and, the, and the scientist was put through quite a few hoops before they finally accepted it. Um, 
there have been criticisms which I believe are going to be met and, and published in the journal. And I think there, I believe too, there's been a second peer review. So I think there's still quite a long thing, way to run on this. And, I, I, and just one picking up on one other thought, how people pick up on details. There was something which they got wrong in that book, and it was to do with a piece of software, and, uh, and it was just about a, a zero, and it was something like, you know, it was a one in 200 chance, you know, that uh, they got the right, you know, identification of it. Well, actually, it was one in 2,000. So, but it, this was a bit of software. It wasn't the science was wrong. No, it was a bit of over-enthusiasm by the author, I would mm. suggest. Um, but I don't think one can actually say the science at this stage... Uh, it can certainly be challenged, I guess, but I don't think we can say at this stage it's wrong. There's still more work going on. And that's the, and that's the other thing I feel about the whole subject. You know, stop and listen, look around, don't jump to conclusions. You know, here, pick up the good things. Don't pay any attention to any infighting and battles between people because uh, we've all got, you know, there's all called vested interests. Um, you know, and, and God bless the East End Society. God bless the East End Society. Uh, for having the right atmosphere. I wasn't there today, but I know that is a place, a forum, where people have the best intentions and, and all this backbiting is absent. We are going to have to wrap things up, though. Thank you for those comments. Um, we are going to wrap things up. Um, I'm going to have one more question, Sue. Well, not so much a question, other than I agree entirely with what Robert has just said. And... Um, I, I, was, I was saying to Drew uh, after his excellent talk, absolutely excellent talk, I was asked just over a year ago what I thought the purpose of the Whitechapel Society was. Um, I would have liked a bit of notice of that question, but nevertheless I gave an answer straight away. Uh, and I stand by that answer. And that, that answer was, and it fits very much with what Drew was saying, it was to provide uh, people, all sorts of people, uh, with a platform. Uh, two types of platforms, the, the two monthly meetings here where we have, have had excellent, absolutely excellent speakers talking about their theories and their ideas, uh, and of course the journal which is published once every two months as well, uh, where we have all sorts of writers contributing articles, um, uh, many of which are absolutely, all of which, all of which are absolutely excellent. We provide that platform, um, and I totally agree uh, uh, with, uh, with really what both Drew and Robert have said about, you know, you can criticise the content, but what you shouldn't be doing is criticising the person uh, and, and making personal remarks. And uh, I've long held the view, and I've made it really quite public, that I think the use of social media uh, in the area of ripperology, and it's probably true in other areas as well, but I'm, I'm not aware of that, um, has on occasions been completely unacceptable. Anyway, that's me. Thank you. Can I? Yep. Yes. Go, go ahead. Yep. So all, all I would like to say is, um, again, to thank you for... for for having me and, An and Andy here tonight. What I said about a conference, I really mean. Um, I've said this before. I said it at the East End Conference last year, and I really would like to make this happen. So if anybody is interested in helping me make this happen, from the Whitechapel Society, from the East End Conference, you know, from all of you as a, as a group or individually, um, I'm easy to find at the University of Northampton. My email address, I did put some cards down by the front, but my email address is, is simply drew.gray at northampton.ac.uk. But if you Google me, well, you might find some abusive stuff, but you'll probably also find me. 
put me as University of Northampton and I am easy to find. Please do get in touch. I really would welcome all of your input to making this sort of thing happen. If we can't do it in 2021, we'll do it in 2022, but I don't see why we can't do it in 2021. 60 miles by road or rail, Northampton. It's not that far away. Thank you very much. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, Drew Gray, Andrew Wise. And that was Dr. Drew Gray at the 2019 East End Conference. We would like to thank Dr. Gray, Steve Ratty, the Committee of the Whitechapel Society, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth and Carl Kopak for making this and all of the talks from this year's conference available for our listeners. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society Journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll find over 170 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations and archive recordings all about the Whitechapel murders and East End crime and history. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast.